Before we begin, this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters. If you enjoy the content and can spare something to contribute to the cost of running the podcast, you can become a supporter or make a one-off tip via the links in the description. Every penny gets reinvested into improving the content of the show. I love putting these episodes together for you, but production comes with costs attached to it, and if I'm going to grow this and take it to the next level, I do need your help. If you can't contribute or aren't keen, I totally understand, but for those who can and are inclined, you know how grateful I am. Either way, remember to drop a like and leave a review, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Napoleon Assist as Wellington Month continues. Today we are discussing Wellington's greatest victory and I have four folks who frankly are well into the the, the crowd, shall we call it, of the Napoleon Assist community. We've spent the last five or ten minutes discussing everything from swords to um, Marcus's uh, great toil in being invited to parties and then having to wear nice clothes in the process in high temperatures. Um, We've discussed the benefits of wearing hats, none of which ironically is going to feature in today's episode. Joining me are Marcus Cribb, the Napoleonic commentator and podcaster, Beatrice de Graff, the author of Fighting Terror After Napoleon and Professor of History at the University of Utrecht, Mark Thompson, the renowned Peninsular War historian and author of Wellington and the Lines of Torres Vedras, and that other person who just knows pretty much everything, the master of adventures in history land and author of Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira, Josh Proven. Folks, it's fantastic to have you back. How are you all doing? Very good, thank you for having us on. Very good, thank you. I'm good too. And Mark remains resolutely silent. (laughs) I'm still here. You are almost one of Josh's battles that he covers, so... uh... I think that's just melting into the corner. I, I, we should say that this is being recorded in 28 degree heat, which for folks who are listening in sunnier climes, well, perhaps that doesn't sound like a great deal. But to us northern Europeans, this is this is far too hot. Um, and if we keep this recording going on too long, it's confidently predicted that Marx is going to melt. Let's just head straight into this then the format is the same as always folks have five minutes to make their pitch although one member of the group is sulking slightly that i didn't let anybody have salamanca i'll let you guess who that individual was let's begin with josh the subject of weddington's greatest victory is some would say simple and when i say some people i presume them to be napoleon fans but um it is actually quite difficult because he won so many battles. Um, but my one, or, what I, okay, what I'll say is this. I have a feeling I know what his, his most successful battle was, his greatest victory was. It's not Waterloo. But I'm not going to go with it in my own usual ordinary self, not just because I've written a book that includes it and I want to try and plug it, but because uh, I think that it does deserve a mention in the discussion. And that is the Battle of Asai, which took place in September of 1803 in the Deccan in India. This battle 
is no, well known to people who know about the Duke of Wellington. It is fairly unknown to those people who are sort of general readers, unless you have read Sharp. And it is completely unknown, as is the war it is contained in, in terms of public understanding of battles and military history. Famously, Wellington was once asked at a function what he thought the best thing he ever did by way of fighting was. And on this occasion, has to be said for honesty's sake, he would sometimes change this answer. He replied, after a brief pause for thought, assai. It's a funny word, but presumably it was well enough known at the time for his, uh, his interrogator to understand what it was. And this was the critical battle of the Deccan campaign within the second Maratha war. The Deccan campaign was Wellesley's show. He was Wellesley then, he wasn't the Duke of Wellington, he was a rather obscure major general uh, who nonetheless happened to be related to the governor general of India. And, you know, lucky. Some people have all the luck, I mean. In the British Army, you needed luck to get places, and Wellington had it in spades <laughs> going, going forwards. But that is not to say that he, didn't, he wasn't good at his job. It just so happened that he had all the luck in the world, but he also had quite a lot of the talent. And this was a battle that was, this, it was the summation of a lot of, a lot of difficult maneuvering and a lot of very hard marching in massive degrees of heat, like we're experiencing today and worse, and against a, a cunning foe with a very large army that was very hard to pin down. The Deccan campaign was specifically uh, conducted in conjunction with the General Lake's Hindustan campaign, both fought against the principal Maratha uh, state, that of Gwalior, led by Dalatrao Sindhya, and Wellesley is fighting in this battle unlike you have seen him fight in the for the rest of his career, because everybody thinks of him in terms of Waterloo. Wellesley in India is nothing like what he became. The reason I believe this battle is Wellington's greatest victory is because it does show, almost unlike his other famous offensive battles, his offensive spirit, his tactical awareness, and his ability to improvise on the spot like no other. No, nor is it clear in any of his other offensive battles the stakes were so high because the enemy he was facing is roughly, and, and when I say so high, I mean so high in terms of the survival of his army should he fail to win. He had by some estimates between seven and 9,000 men. He had opposing him at a low estimate, 30,000 men. Most people think of over 40,000, 20,000 of whom were as were well-drilled sepoy style troops like, his, like the majority of his own army. And he was also vastly outnumbered in cavalry. And the type of cavalry we're talking about here are the type of cavalry that crush and destroy armies when they run away. 
This can be evidenced by what happened to Colonel Monson's detachment at the end of the Hindustan campaign, where a complete, almost completely cavalry army completely uh, wiped out a, a large British uh, presidency detachment when it tried to escape from it. Had Wellesley lost this battle, had he been driven from the field, it's, uh, he himself said he would have just had to hang himself from his tent pole because it, was, it would have been over. He took massive risk to fight this battle. And the fact that he managed to win it, to tactically take the field and break the enemy in front of him is a testament not only to the toughness of his troops, but the capability of the commander who led them. And I think just on the scale of military tactical success, it must rank incredibly highly amongst his greatest victories. Nicely done, Josh. Gets us off in brilliant style as ever. Thank you very much. Hmm, Asai, Wellington's greatest victory. It's, it's probably one of the three that folks would probably think to raise initially, isn't it? And the other two being Salamanca and Waterloo. Well, it's obviously not Waterloo because as I'm forever banging on about on this podcast and others, Waterloo is a coalition victory. It's a joint plan. Wellington sits there and basically says to Napoleon, come at me. And by the way, what you don't know is that I am the bait and Blucher's the snare in the trap. So to what extent can you really call that Wellington's victory? I would suggest not. It's Wellington and Blucher's victory. So you could rule it out on those grounds. It's also not particularly brilliant tactically. So on many counts, we've discounted Waterloo. Salamanca, well, I said that Salamanca was off the cards anyway for tonight. It was too obvious, even though personally, I would say Salamanca is the greatest. Um, so aside, I mean, there's one thing that I wanted to pick up on. You said that this was the battle in which the survivor of the army was most in jeopardy if he failed to win. Fuente Don Euro? If Wellington had lost at Fuente Don Euro, there is the ravine with limited uh, means of crossing back into the heart of Portugal. Um, so potentially that's as dangerous. I, I know what you're saying, so for folks who aren't familiar, Asai is fought essentially in a, a strip of land between two rivers. And so if the, uh, if the army had been broken, then, you know, they've got to get back across a ford one way or another. That would have been a choke point. And so they would have been crushed. Yes. But I wonder if the same could be actually said for Fuente. Um, the other counterpoint I want to pitch to you is plenty goes wrong. This isn't one of those battles where Wellington has everything certainly as neatly under control as he would like, although in truth, I don't think he ever has as much control as he would quite like because he is the world's great control freak. Um, but I mean, with the, the um, pickets of the day heading too far north and getting caught effectively in a crossfire between um, the, the, the Maratha army and the troops stationed in Asai itself, that went horribly wrong. Um, so, and the initial idea to outflank the enemy, okay, that's not his fault, but that didn't work either. So great in terms of improvisation, but surely the mark of a greatest battle should be that you have everything thought out, have all of those contingencies ready and then implement them. Yes, these are very good counterpoints. I think the question of control over the victory for a start is, 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 is sort of a matter of sort of debate as to how you qualify greatest victory. This is certain, I, I feel that this deserves mention as, amongst his greatest victories against the odds. I think that 
although it is sort of like the sublime example to find a battle where everything went right, um, that is very rare. That is a very rare thing to happen. As it as it happens, if I was if I was playing this to actually actually highlight what I believe is probably his most his greatest victory, I would I might actually say Victoria. Um, but because most things went right in that battle and the political ramifications were very great. But I'm arguing for Asai because everything went wrong and he still won. And leading on from that onto the question of would he really, was it as uh, dire a situation as went this? Um, I, will, I will use the example of what General Napier said, which was essentially that he read the memorandum that Wellesley wrote about Monson's retreat. And he said that the lesson he took from that was to never retreat in the face of an Indian army. The implication being, especially at SI where you have rivers to cross, you have Easily, and the Marathas could easily have cut that river off, even if they could have crossed it. Um, the implication being that armies just don't survive if you run away. And if you get broken and then run away, it's, it's really over. His force is split, remember, at Assai. He doesn't have even the entire force with him. Uh, when, if the French, the French turned his position at Fuentes, um, it is a dire situation, yes. But the French, as it turned out, did not follow that success with enough vigor, we'll call it, or it took notice of the success they were on the verge of having. Whereas the Marathas, if you once they let their cavalry loose to pursue an enemy, that was all they did. And that's why armies don't really survive if you lose a battle like us on the field. I mean, I, I could come back and and debate with you and, yeah, and yeah, cheer yeah. you on that point, but I, I don't want to dominate the discussion because the point is that this is a, a multi-directional discussion. Marcus has very patiently been sitting there with a sort of E hand raised. Um, and Mark is also indicating that he has a, a, a physical hand raised. Um, so we've, we've got many people who want to challenge you on this, Josh. Uh, Marcus, you, you pitch in first. Thanks. So linking to the last point about the cavalry and chasing down, I think that really reflects on, I mean, a what if Wellington had lost, not if he was winning. One of the biggest points about I say, even though, you know, Wellington said it was his greatest victory and the odds on paper look stacked against him, is how many of those cavalry were really in the fights, how many were intending to be in the fights, and how many were effectively bolted onto the army looking for an opportunity to chase down rather than actually being major combatants. They were close. Some of them, I think the majority of those cavalry were closer to bandits than like cavalry. They weren't really there to intend to be part of the major battle, but rather get involved if it had all gone wrong. And they certainly weren't involved in the fighting until the, the main retreat. So it does slightly skew the numbers to make it look like Wellington was fighting 30 against one uh, at a side on paper would be when we were talking about the cavalry and the, and the chasing down, I would say. 
am, am I to respond to this or? <laughs> you absolutely are. But before you do, can we all please just suspend a disbelief that Marcus, as somebody deeply invested in Colt Wellington, has actually <laughs> injected some nuanced discussion into this and and isn't praising Wellington vociferously. Mark's know, mouth it, is a goal. Sometimes I actually, you know, do research and I'm actually balanced, but um, I surprise myself at times. Josh, take it away. Okay, that's a very good point. Um, the makeup of the Maratha army is not something that is uh, relatable to a European army. It, is, it consists of many parts. First of all, what we have to understand is that uh, Wellesley's army was, as I said, somewhere between seven and 10,000 men, all right? Um, he has far less guns than the Marathas do, and he can't use them because all, the Maratha guns knock his guns out of action very quickly. He cannot save them now, actually, is the point. He has to win the battle to save his guns for a start. Um, secondly, as I said at the beginning, even if you take every cavalryman out of the Maratha army, right? They still have 20,000 sepoy trained infantry at least. Maybe that's like a sort of overestimation, but the intelligence that was provided at the time suggested between 15 to 20,000 infantry that were a match usually for the East India Company sepoys and proved very redoubtable. Uh, during the battle itself. So even if you take away the cavalry, you're still outnumbered by very dogged opponents. Now, if you look at the cavalry, you have, at, you have a squadron of regular and well-equipped uh, cavalry attached to every Maratha brigade. And those are the ones that get involved principally in the attack on the, on the pickets of the day. And then you have the slightly less well-equipped ones who are sort of a, sort of a kind of a mobile reserve. And then you have what the, the Pindaris, who are those bandits chaps you were talking about at the beginning. They are indeed the hangers-on type cavalry. And they were deployed out on the right flank, actually already on the other side of the uh, Wellesley's left flank river, we'll call it. And the point is that then it's not their job to actually fight in a battle. They know that, everybody knows that. And it's even actually said by the British people, the British, the British Army officials that know actually tell Wellesley, don't worry about the cavalry too much because you'll ride over them if you come at them. But watch out for their guns and infantry. But what you need to also remember with that is that if the army is broken by the, the regular Maratha infantry and their regular cavalry and their really, really powerful, uh, uh, you know, battery of guns. And people said at the battle they had never seen a cannonade like this in India. And people and in the following battle at um, Argam, as soon as the Maratha guns opened fire, units actually broke because they were expecting a cannonade like at SI, and Wellesley had to rally them. But that is the point. If they had broken the army then those um, voracious uh, cavalry would have, I think, eaten them alive because they, they just have to chase people. Mark, let me bring you in. 
Josh, thank you for uh, your your presentation. That was really interesting. I'm going to have a go at Zach first, just to, in, in defence of you. I'm not sure I would agree that um, <laughs> sort of planning everything out advance is the sign of a great general or of a greatest victory. Um, I think flexible and adaptable to the to the the events is maybe sort of a, another way of putting it. You know, there, there is the very famous sort of comment on war that, you know, sort of pl plans ne never sort of survive first contact with the enemy. So I, I'm not sure I'm with you on that one. Um, but, but Mark, yours is all based on thinking ahead. So surely that's going to undermine your argument. I'm, I'm just deliberately um, being awkward here, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, actually. And, yeah. and I'm deliberately poking Josh, but yes, flexibility. And, is and yeah, again, just the coalition thing. Even most of Wellington's battles were fought with the co coalition troops, even even in the peninsula. But mo moving on swiftly, on it, Josh thought that the, the numbers, as as you've talked about already, are enormous when you're trying to compare the actual numbers of um, Wellington's troops against the Maratha troops. Um, so it, it does beg the question that like, if they'd broken, so Wellington attacking with the numbers he had, with with the number of light infantry the Marathas had, you know, was he being aggressive? Was he being brilliant? Was he being reckless? Or was he being inexperienced? He was being, he was being, he was being, he was, he was being audacious and he was being reckless. Those are the two things that happened at SI. Like I said, everything went wrong. He expected the Marathas to react in a certain way, and they didn't. And in fact, they exceeded what he thought they could do. And he, he actually got himself into a very, very dangerous situation as a result of that. Um, because already, just by committing himself to a battle at this point, he was doing so without his um, subordinate, Colonel Stevenson, with about another five to 6,000 men who were separate from him, but he so desperately wanted to bring the Marathas to a decisive action that he just leapt on them. And he was under the impression that they would be no match for his infantry uh, and couldn't maneuver, but they could. And so he took an awful lot of casualties in winning this battle. And after it, he was very concerned that the third of the, he lost a third of his army. Um, present at the battle, I should say, not a third of his force at the battle. Uh, afterwards, his letters uh, and dispatches are full of um, explanations as to why it was, he, it was a necessity to fight the battle in case he got pulled up on charges of, of recklessness. But there's no doubt that this is the battle where everything went wrong and he managed to pull off a victory. Um, it's like you said, no plan survives contact with the enemy and that could be the motto for SI. <laughs> Beatrice, have you got anything that you want to grill Josh about? Yes, well, I'm not so familiar with the, the, the battles in India, but uh, there's there's one connection that, that connects these these battles uh, with with my Battle of Toulouse, and that's the use of Congreve rockets. And uh, I read up a little bit on this about technological innovation, because a lot of people say that these Napoleonic battles were perhaps fought with great skills, but they did not involve that much technological innovation. So uh, uh, I heard that one of, one of the innovations was the invention of the Congreve rocket. I'm not sure whether it was used in a site, but it was used in other battles. And there's also some discussion whether it was invented by um, 
the typo Sultan and his father, who even used it in his manual, or uh, also by the, the British themselves. And it, it was used in Toulouse uh, with some great shock and horror for the French troops. So I was wondering uh, for Josh, did the Battle of Assay also involve not just tactical operational successes, but also uh, technological innovations with artillery. I mean, uh, I don't know if the Tipo Sultan and uh, the, the Indian troops at that point used uh, specified or specific rockets or, or, or cannons pulled by elephants. So how what, what is there specific about technology used and artillery? Very, very interesting question. Um, uh, Interestingly, Assai is not famous for many technological uh, for a technological use of arms. It's 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 famous mostly because the Marathas had an excellent um, artillery park, uh, artillery train. Uh, most even Woolwich trained uh, officers would would say that the Marathas cast excellent guns in their foundries at Pune, and they. Would actually try and they actually recommended modeling future British guns on on the Marathas Maratha way of, of doing this, and uh, there was one officer who said the Marathas had uh, field artillery with excellent barrels on 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 old carriages or something like that. But uh, so there was that they had excellent artillery, um, but they didn't have. Nobody mentions rockets at Assai that I've read. I believe some were used at Algam, the battle that followed Assai some months later. Um, but Wellesley didn't have actually a very high opinion of them even then. He dismissed them as, as um, just sort of scare tactics. This being said, he had had a very bad time with rockets when he was still a colonel in the siege of Serengapatam in 1799, when he got his, he got, he got, he got beaten off in an attack on a small forested area by um, Tipu Sultan's uh, troops. And he used concrete rockets then. He used he used uh, yes not, concrete, not the concrete ones. Yeah, yeah. Not concrete yet, of course, but he yeah. used of uh, well the bamboo uh, sticks with filled mm -hmm. with dynamite and uh, yeah. rocket-like things. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it's, I believe it is, it is thought that, that the, the Mysore rockets are where Congreve modeled his rockets from. Um, and rockets actually have a fairly long history of use in India, generally speaking. Uh, but yeah, not a decide for some reason. They didn't, uh, they didn't pull their, they pulled their guns with oxen and, and things like that. And the, uh, there were some elephants present for the, for the generals, but uh, for some reason it's quite, quite, um, quite mundane in terms of like special weapons at SI. Josh, thank you very much for that. Case for SI duly made. Let's go now to, we're gonna to go to the, la the latest battle in, of the secrets that we're looking at tonight. And that is Beatrice championing Toulouse. Oh, whoa, yes, thank you. Um, well, obviously I'm not going to make the case that, it, that this is the greatest victory uh, Wellington ever won. In fact, there was some hassle whether it was a victory at all. And it's alleged that uh, General Beresford said, well, we can't have it, just name it a victory. So they sort of rewrote history uh, according to Fortescue. Um, 
But the reason that I still would like to make a case for the Battle of Toulouse is threefold. I have a strategic point to make, a tactical point to make, and a political one. So first of all, strategy. You could say that in the grander scheme of things, this battle was the last one in the Peninsular War, and it was the conclusion of a series of battle victories where uh, Wellington's warriors um, never gave up. They were never really beaten in battle, and uh, they kept their ground, and uh, they were able to pursue and drive the French out of Spain. Even more important, they also uh, tried to steer the French uh, um, uh, Maréchal Soult's troops to Toulouse rather than to Bordeaux, because they needed to keep the French away from the important city of Bordeaux. That was a strategic goal. And you have also uh, to remember that at that point, neither Wellington nor Soult knew for sure what was happening in Paris. There were rumors, but they didn't know what was going on. So it was still in a strategic scheme of things, it was an important battle. And uh, Wellington succeeded in driving the French away from Bordeaux and retrieved Bordeaux with, without much uh, effort. And then there was also the strategic goal of keeping Soult's army to join forces with Suchet, keeping them, uh, uh, took them to bay. And we could argue that that did not really succeed, but you could also say that the armistice came right in time. So we never know for sure. But strategically, this first element of driving them out of Spain after the Battle of Ortez, and then uh, keeping them away from Bordeaux, and then locking them, first of all, in the city, was a kind of a strategic goal in the southeast, in the, where it was still very important what was going on, it was still in, in a major theater of war. That's the strategic part. That also brings me to the tactical part. You could also argue that perhaps the greatest victories are not the ones where everything goes smoothly and you have lots of luck. But this is a battle uh, which was fought in heavy conditions. It was raining, it was muddy, the rivers were too broad for the pontoniers. Um, uh, when Soult was in Toulouse, the, 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 the fortifications at the height of the Calvinetra, that was too strong to take straight on. So the performance and the endurance of Wellington's troops were veterans who came out of the south. And he also, Wellington, had to uh, restore order amongst the Spanish and Portuguese troops. There's also rumors and reports of, of pillaging and rape along the way. Also for Marshal Soult's troops, because he sacrificed um, order for speed. And Wellington didn't in the end. So he managed to keep his veterans intact and they endured and they fought this battle. And uh, uh, there were heavy casualties. It was one of the most bloodiest battles in a series, 8,000 wounded and uh, killed. So you could say that tactically, perhaps it was again uh, uh, they did not achieve all the war aims but it was quite an effort to keep fighting to keep salt there and then in the end they did cross the rivers and they did reach the city but as you all know um salt decided not to fight back and he uh, the battle took place at the 10th of april after a series of preparatory uh, uh, efforts and then in the night from the 11th to the 12th Salt uh, decided to leave stealthily uh, through the southeast. So in that sense, that's why both the French and the British claim victory. If you look at the various Wikipedia sites, it's, it's quite uh, funny. The Germans say the French won, the French said 
day one, of course, the British said, they're quite nuanced. They said, well, we sort of won, but uh, okay, the French may think that they won as well. It depends very much, again, on how you reckon, how you measure success. Um, so tactically, still amongst all these, these um, how do you say, negative, negative uh, adversarial effects, they managed to pull through and they managed to uh, keep their forces intact and make the moves. My last point is perhaps even more important. That's my political point. Um, it was quite important that Bordeaux and Toulouse went over to the Allied forces uh, quite uh, quickly because it gave the morale in France for the Bourbon party a huge boost. Bordeaux almost surrendered itself out of his own account, but also in Toulouse, the royalists, they rose up and they heralded uh, the, 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 the entrance of the, the British, British troops with, with white cocards uh, and were very happy to let the British troops in and they were quite relieved that Salt had gone. And this is the area in France from kind of a half crescent from Bretagne to the south, uh, to the southeast, where the royalist support was quite strong. And although Wellington was careful not to immediately rally behind the Bourbon king, he knew that it was very important that in France, they were the, the French did not just see themselves as defeated people, but they also saw themselves at the side of the liberators. Uh, so for the people in the south, the royalist cause, or you could perhaps even better argue the anti-Bonapartist cause, was very important also during the Hundred Days period and then the return, uh, the return of Napoleon in the Hundred Days period and the final battle. It was important that the south still kept strong its support uh, for the royalist cause. And Salt was seen as a very cunning marshal, an opportunist. Um, he quarreled with his other generals all the time, so he did not enjoy as much standing as, as Wellington did. And I think politically, therefore, you could argue that uh, the end of, uh, of the Battle of Toulouse was the finishing off, was the finishing touch of the Peninsula campaign, in as much as it was militarily an insatisfactory battle. But still, perhaps, a great, not, not the greatest one, but a great one in performance and endurance after all. Yeah, thank you very much for that. That's given us plenty to think about. It, firstly, yes, it's important that we acknowledge that, uh, and, and I say this as a Brit, I would not actually consider Toulouse to be um, really much of a victory. Yes, okay, the Wellington's force occupied Toulouse, but I think really the French won and then conducted a prudent withdrawal, um, which to me has sort of an air of what happens at Talavera, in the sense that Wellington wins at Talavera, yes, that is a, an allied victory. And then other circumstances mean that he has to pull back. Um, so I'm not 100% sure that I, I mean, if, if I'm gonna class Talavera as a, an allied victory, then I'm not sure I can class Toulouse as an allied victory for the same kinds of reasons without being open to charges of hypocrisy. Um, in terms of what you say about tenacity, yes, absolutely. I would actually argue that it's Wellington's men who bear most of the responsibility for the successes that are gained at Toulouse, as opposed to Wellington's plans themselves. I mean, yes, the, the terrain made Toulouse an almost impossible battle to fight anyway. Um, it resulted in a sort of very long flanking maneuver where, maneuver where um, effectively, Wellington's force was exposed to cannon fire. 
down its flank as it was trying to move into position, which took its toll. Um, and I'm not sure that, I mean, you can argue this both ways. You could argue that Wellington knows his men well enough to know how much punishment they can take, but equally, I would say that actually it's the tenacity of his men that are key to the way in which Toulouse unfolds. And the last counterpoint I would offer is in relation to what you said about politically. You are absolutely right about Wellington being deliberately and very intelligently politically astute and very cautious and making sure that the French weren't oppressed by the Anglo-Portuguese and Spanish forces that went into the south of France. And in fact, he sent home a whole, uh, is it a whole division, I think, of <laughs> Spanish forces, a huge number of men, um, that because he couldn't trust them, he issued explicit orders saying, you will not plunder. And the Spaniards, for some potentially quite obvious reasons, were out for revenge, given what had happened to their country, and so they disobeyed orders and Wellington sent them back because they were too much of a liability. So I think you're absolutely right. He is politically and strategically astute in that sense, but I'm not sure if that's so much tied up in Wellington as Wellington at Toulouse as much as Wellington the commander who just knows how to conduct warfare effectively and how to not alienate a local population. So you've got kind of three counterpoints there from me. I was a bit greedy, sorry. No, no, no. I, I knew what I was, was taking on with, with Toulouse, but I still think uh, it's, it's also important to highlight and, and underscore the battles that perhaps are a bit lost in history. And as you said, took so much tenacity and uh, uh, zeal and, uh, well, dedication from the troops because, well, Frere and his Spanish men, they went in and, uh, well, they sort of lost out. And then uh, the other divisions, they marched along this flank line at the heights of the Calvinette and they were shot, shot and bombarded all the time. They suffered, most of the losses were inflicted there and they just persevered, they just held on. And um, uh, British accounts, they, stre they, they, they stress how distressful this was. And so you're right, it's more Wellington's man than perhaps his uh, major battle orders. Uh, but still, he made sure that he had his men trained in this fashion, that he lined up his best generals, and uh, he al allowed them also the command and the control of, of Wellington's army, also amongst his generals, was really very good, as opposed to Salt, who uh, could not really rely on, on giving orders. And, well, we know this from Waterloo, uh, so I, I don't have any, um, evidence from Toulouse, but it's said that Salt was a, a, a terrible administrator, he couldn't really write well, and uh, well, it's partly due to his illegible handwriting or word mess that um, Grouchy didn't understand his orders uh, uh, at Waterloo. Um, so you could argue that Salt did not score in this department where Wellington did. Again, I'm not making the case that Toulouse is a victory, but I think that what was achieved by the British troops also, uh, and which what, what they didn't do, the, the pillaging, the plundering, it was kept at bay. Uh, there was also room for the royalists to celebrate. So it was politically and strategically an, an, an asset, not a crown, but a finisher for the Peninsula War series. So I, I, I do take your point, I accept them, but in the larger scheme of things, I think Toulouse is, within the conditions that there were that were set and that Wellington could not much alter. There were so many mistakes and mishaps and still it was it was a close call, but it was politically and strategically an astute battle that was being waged. 
I will deliberately resist the temptation to start talking about pillage and plunder and looting because people have heard far too much about that from me already. Mark, what would you like to, to offer in, in counterpoint to Beatrice? Yes. Thank you, Beatrice. Um, I think you know, I would probably uh, agree with you before I disagree with you in saying I think the political part of this was probably the most important. I think Wellington knew there was a he, there needed to be a visible presence in southern France in invading the country. And this was all about booking their seat at the Congress of Vienna. Obviously not known at the time, but this is why the British army needed to be visible. So I, I would probably agree with you that, that political was probably much more important. The, the thing I don't understand, and this, this is kind of more the, the question, is really through the, the, the back end of 1813 and certainly 1814, the battles seem to get bloodier and bloodier. Now, I don't really understand what the hurry was to actually beat Soult's French army. All Wellington had to do was to be there and keep him moving. And I wonder whether a, a Vittoria-type campaign where he's constantly outflanking him would have worked better than wasting thousands of good troops banging his head against a wall. So the question in there, really, what was Wellington's hurry in fighting this series of bloody battles? No, that, that's a very good one. I'm not sure whether I can uh, respond to that, but I know that one reason for the hurry was that Bordeaux need to be sealed off from uh, Soult's army. And Soult himself was responsible for the hurry in the first place because he covered the ground in only a couple of days. And as I said, he sacrificed order for speed and he wanted to reach Toulouse at any cost. So Wellington went after him, also needed to split up his army to, 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 to keep Bordeaux uh, out of the hands of Soult. And perhaps it was also the case that he wanted to prevent Soult from reaching Toulouse and uh, hiding himself within the city walls. That may have been an aim, but, but if that was the aim, he failed. Not sure whether that is it. Um, and I also think he wanted to round things off. It was, it was after all, they knew that Salt at Ortez had already been uh, defeated. They knew that they were almost there. So perhaps that explains the rush, but I don't know if the others have anything uh, to, to contribute to this. Let me throw it straight open because I'm sitting here scratching my head thinking that Mark makes an excellent point and I can't work it out either. I don't even know if Mark has a, an idea, an inkling in mind, but let me ask Marcus and Josh first of all. Well, first of all, I, I would just like to recall, uh, applaud Beatrice's bravery for taking on such a tough to lose like assignment. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. Um, you know, it's a brave choice to try and champion this one because of the things you've said about it is, are completely true. But I would like to just point, just for the, for the record, uh, say that it was a tactical victory. It wasn't as if the French just said, oh, we've won and we'll go away now. They, their, their flank was turned on the heights. If they had stayed, they would have been destroyed. They had to leave, they were driven from the field. So that is a tactical victory as it is defined by rules of how you define a tactical victory. Debate it with French and people all you like, but that is, if you, if you retreat because you have been outflanked, you have lost tactic, in a tactical situation, that means you have been forced to leave, you haven't chosen to. So it is absolutely a victory. Um, 
why he chose to, it's also a very large one as well. If you think about the numbers involved, you about 80,000 men all told either side. And I think that speaks a little to why Wellington is, is happier to fight political battles now. Um, battles where the politics are somewhat more important than the strategic and tactical success. He's making a point. He has the men to spare now. He, they are winning the war. Rumors from Paris are quite you know, hopeful to some extent. So he can be more risky. He doesn't need to be as careful as he was in Spain prior to 1812, we'll say. And also I think the terrain is a, is a big piece of why he chooses to fight the way he does. Once you're into France, you no longer have all these mountain ranges and supportive populations that will, first of all, the population will not necessarily tell the French where you are and mountain ranges to hide where you're marching. So the game changes once he gets into France. First of all, he has a much larger army, about 48,000 men, and he's winning. He can risk these sorts of battles. He can fight in places he would not normally have fought. And I think that's probably the case. I don't really have uh, criticism to it, to be honest. I, don't, I, think it's, I think it is both a, obviously an original choice to choose as one of his greatest battles. And I think there is actually an argument that it is one of his greatest battles. Um, it's just because it's not as tactically um, uh, pleasing, we'll say, <laughs> that it is, it is not sort of put in with Salamanca, Victoria sort of things. Um, but in terms of the, of the overall picture, it's him putting a stamp on his authority sort of thing. You can put up the biggest defense you like, but I will still defeat you. Oh gosh, thank you, Josh. You made my pitch. Marcus, let me come to you. Okay, I mean, I absolutely love uh, Beatrice's reasoning for highlighting a, a minor battle. I think it's really interesting to, you know, pick it's a major up on battle. The... <laughs> Marcus. <laughs> Now, now, children. Um, <laughs> um, because it is right to highlight some of the um, engagements that don't get all of the uh, the paper and the glory, um, like you know Waterloo does. You know, several a dozen uh, publications a month. It feels like, and uh, the later campaign and the earlier campaign of the Peninsula War do not. However, it is as as her pitch you know highlighted. It is kind of often debated as a draw. Um, by certain factions. So it kind of begs the question how much of a, a clear victory it was. Therefore, as you know, the title being greatest victory, um, it slightly begs that question, really. Um, but it's a, it's a really interesting choice and obviously leads to some really interesting thoughts on it, of which we've, we've covered quite a lot of them, apart from maybe some of the links to Bayon. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. Can I just ask Marcus, being Dutch, what does interesting mean here for a Brit? Oh no, I genuinely mean I am interested by this. <laughs> it's a it's a good topic okay. to, to pick. <laughs> I, th I think it's also fair to say that Wellington fought a lot of battles like Toulouse, where tactically it's it's successful, but strategically it, the success is somewhat nullified. It's not unusual at all for Wellington to fight battles like this, to be honest. Yeah, very well. So you just took the words right out of my mouth that actually we could sit here about 
and talk about most of Wellington's victories. And I was thinking about questions in advance and thinking that actually I could quite often say the same thing about these, that the aftermath does leave some sort of dots hanging in the air that makes us question to what extent is this truly great? You know, none of the, I can't think of any battle really that is truly an Austerlitz in terms of scale. And I, I've been racking my brains and thinking, well, does anything come close? Perhaps you could argue that Salamanca came closest, but it's not an Austerlitz by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I can think of two, but I'll let Marcus do his pitch first. Okay, fair enough. Um, I, mean, and... I, don't think that, I don't think they approach the scale of Austerlitz, of course, but in the ball. No, but then the, the, scale of the, the scale of the Peninsula War was very different, uh, mostly yeah. pitch battles to the scale of the Eastern Front. That's that's true. And and Josh has made a lovely British, it's almost like you're good at this presenting luck, Josh. People should go and uh, check out Adventures in History Land to see more of it. Because I'm now going to segue straight into Marcus, who, rumour has it, is writing a book about his choice, but he hasn't told anyone about it. So uh, quite where those rumours have come from, I, I don't know. Cheeky so-and-so. You know I wanted to choose Salamanca. Uh, and that's not just because I'm doing a, a pitch with uh, somebody else in this room at National Art Museum uh, at the end of this week. Um, and that should be really good fun. Now, um, of course, I've got to champion uh, the second battle of Porto, May 1809, um, for many different reasons. It is, it's Wellington on the offensive. Wellington not being a defensive general as he's often slandered to be and undermined as being so, even though I would argue that being defensive general is not necessarily a bad thing as you're trying to save the lives of your troops, troops and use this um, terrain to your advantage. But anyway, that's a, a rant for another day. Um, Porto is really important strategically and tactically. Um, strategically, uh, Wellington is returning to the peninsula after being cleared after the Convention of Stintra, and he's got the choice. He's got the choice of marching east just into Spain and attacking a larger French force or marching north to liberate Porto from Soult. Uh, in doing so, he kind of slid the Portuguese resistance, bringing more troops to his banner, but also proving to the political overlords, because war is just a continuation of politics, Klaus teaches us um, that the Peninsula War is winnable. Without proving that the Peninsula War could have been over very early, the other commanders were ready to pack up, like Craddock, like Moore, and head back home to Blighty. With proving North and doing a dynamic strike in the campaign, he takes the fight to the French. He takes the fight to the French when they don't expect it and in the different points where they expect it. So they do expect for him to either um, hang around Lisbon effectively or march east. He goes north um, through the town of Grigio, where there's actually fighting and Wellington goes on the offensive and attacks there as part of the campaign two days before. And then actually within the town of Porto, crosses the river. He is this an example of him sending out intelligence. Uh, he sends out a exploring officer, an intelligence officer under the name of uh, Colonel Waters. Uh, he's a Colonel of Portuguese rank at the time. Effectively, one of Wellington's spies, uh, but he's an exploring officer. So he's in uniform, legitimate. And he finds the barges. He's, he gathers the intelligence, uses his local knowledge and his um, mastering of the Portuguese language, brings back a skiff, a small boat uh, with a barber and a priest. They pick up um, a few more of the locals and they have a permission to go across the river and pick up four barges which are hidden on the north side of the bank. This is incredibly risky. The Juro River 
itself is wide and fast flowing. Salt does not expect an attack to come from the south side of Villanova or the suburbs of the river. It's really steep sided. Salt is expecting either a sweep far, far up the river or probably down towards the coast, um, utilizing some support from the Royal Navy. And he's actually lounging in bed for most of this battle and sending his vast wagon trains of loot and then some of his wounded um, northeast heading back towards friendly held area uh, where Marshal Ney uh, is in uh, that area of Spain. This shows Wellington's risk and ambition. He gets those uh, four barges, they come back and far too laconically, because I do believe that Wellington would have been on his the edge of his kind of figurative seat, is he gives the order, let them cross. The men of the light company of the buffs cross the river, clamber a really sharp escarpment and hold the seminary. More men from the third regiment of foot, the buffs follow on. We know mixed with at least one or two riflemen of the 5th 60th. And then later, most the rest of the uh, buffs followed by the remainder of Hill's brigade. During this time, um, the, the French slowly realised what's going on. We think in the confusion, they, the buffs on the north side of the river are mistaken for Swiss troops in French service who mostly wore red. And slowly the 17th Eam and then the 17th Eam in full strength are thrown against the walls of the seminary and are repeatedly uh, repelled from those strong position, but being vastly outnumbered British position uh, with supporting British accurate cannon fire. The first shot fired was a British howitzer that overshots onto a British, uh, sorry, wrong, onto a French position and wiped out the French guns, uh, all of the crew either killed or wounded in its first opening shot of a shrapnel shell. Without going into the details of the waves of the attack, um, the, the attack and the cross is made. British are able to find more barges. The Portuguese so hated are the French in the town, the Portuguese have hidden barges in every nook and cranny they can and bring them out and give them to the British, uh, starting with the uh, Guards Brigade in the centre of the town. And it, it kind of, Porto to me really highlights the Peninsula War, that French are so hated in this town because of the, the looting, the rape, the murder that has taken place after the first battle of Porto. And this really is a Anglo-Portuguese army that is coming to liberate the town from the oppressor. They are coming there to try to stop these horrendous atrocities. And they do it with very little bloodshed. The ways of the attacks, um, you know, against a strong wall, managed to lower the loss of life. Very quickly, Salt's army is in full retreat. Wellington presses on. Uh, they rarely get too close because the weather then turns against them. But Salt's army is pushed into the mountains where they have to concede full defeat, spiking their guns and firing them barrel to barrel, which is a disgrace for any gunner, uh, not only in honour, but also to lose tactically their weapons. Uh, they actually throw their loot and then actually their pay train down into the ravines to be lost. So everything effectively is lost. They are walking with what the clothes on their back, running back towards Spain. They finish the campaign with next to nothing. And Wellington is able to retake uh, Porto, capture the entirety pretty much of the French wounded. And he writes to Salt asking for medical help because he does not uh, intend to have to look after a hospital and has managed to solidify the Portuguese resistance in the north, 
which in Porto is Portugal's second city. So it's a really big symbolic gesture for very little blood lost. It, it gives Wellington his title of Baron Duro and uh, a title that's still used to this day. And uh, Duro, the battle honor, is actually given to several of the regiments, of which the third regiment, the Buffs, put it on their, their colors. But just going on to, you think it's just important then and there's many other victories. But just to kind of put it into some context, I'm going to bring in Kitty, um, the Duke's wife. And in 1813, she wrote to Lady Hood, commenting on the different titles she'd held as Wellington was promoted throughout the peerage. And she wrote, my little boy's title is now Baron Duro. They wanted to change his title and raise his rank, but I roared and screamed. The passage of the Juro, the most brilliant and least bloody of all his father's achievements, should not be forgotten, and he shall keep the name. Uh, that's from the uh, reprinted in the Northridge Review, and I just want to thank Rory Muir for bringing that one to my uh, attention. So, a big thanks to Rory Muir for supporting some of my research and work. But, you know, it shows that it's, it's not a bloody victory, but it is a great victory, so much that Kitty, Packenham, you know, Wellington's wife, wants it to be remembered by his son. I'm resisting the temptation to applaud because much though I do like to bash you on occasion, Marcus, um, that was well done. Nice also that you gave a nod to uh, Rory Muir, who I've described in the past as the godfather of Napoleonic histories, certainly when it comes to Peninsula. And I don't mean that in kind of the uh, shady mafia-esque kind of godfather. He's just a lovely individual. And I've been very lucky to, to um, have corresponded with him over the years. And he's always been exceptionally kind to me. Um, Back to the, the business of Porto, though. Yes, this is a good one. Um, but there are a few things that I'd pick you up on. Firstly, you argued that um, Porto is the battle that proves the Peninsula War is winnable. I would suggest that the sense that the Peninsula War is winnable is a nagging concern that persists for a very long time, possibly as late as Salamanca. Um, certainly it's not until Salamanca that really Wellington's critics are particularly silenced and their, their comments switch from attacking Wellington to attacking the government for not having supported Wellington enough. Um, the point at which strategically the Peninsula War seems viable, I would argue, is in the wake of the success of the Torres Vedras campaign whereby it's proven, and Mark is gleefully clapping his hands at, at that comment, uh, whereby it's proven that more was actually incorrect. Portugal can be defended, even if it is only a very small slither of Portugal just north of Lisbon. Um, and to what extent does that really count is something that I will fire at Mark in, in due course. So I put that to you in terms of Porto proves that Peninsula War is winnable. Another point yeah, I would make. Yes. I probably should say that actually, yes, it proves, I think, rather, as well as Torres Vedras, but before that, the year before, that actually Portugal is winnable. Holding Portugal is achievable uh, rather than the whole of Spain, uh, rather than the Peninsula War. But by defending Portugal, its mountains, its passes, that could be a Peninsula victory, maybe not as we know it. Wellington is more ambitious, I would argue, better you know, uh, then, then that and was able to liberate Spain as well. However, Porto proves that he could liberate Portugal, and he does that in a in a stroke, in a in a single day. 
and sends the French packing. And that has huge ramifications for the Portuguese who, let's face it, they Portuguese were the reason that we were there. They were the allies that we had gone to help. Mm, I'm not sure if I'll let you have that because okay. 1807, the French invade Portugal. And it's not until August 1808 when you have the Dost and Mayo uprising that uh, British troops are landing initially intended for Spain, Wellington makes contact with the Hunter at Galathea and is told by the Hunter, actually, we don't want you, we don't need you, go away. And then they uh, head south and, and land and subsequently get Relitha and Vimero. So I'm, I'm not sure I'll let you have that one. Other points that I want to make, because I'm aware that other people um, want to come in. And these are two small things. One, there's no contingency. If Salt um, had got his act together, then, you know, potentially things could have been quite sticky. And Wellington's got part of his force on the other side of the river with limited means of support. Yes, okay, you mentioned artillery support, and that's fair, but little else in the way of support that could have people, we could easily be turning around and going, you know, what was Wellington honestly thinking at a Porto? It was far too ambitious a move. And the other uh, one I want to raise is that it's not quite as complete a victory as he wanted. And this comes back to this, this running theme. that He's always looking for that crush the army, take an entire army off the table, if you will. Um, and he never has that. And that's the case at Porto, even if the reason for that is actually the tenacity of the French as they kind of fight their way through the, the passes in the north of the country. Uh, if I can come back to that. So he does have a uh, contingency. Uh, he's looking for a passage to the west, which they make into the main town. He also lands uh, Murray to the east, uh, mostly King's German Legion and cavalry. And they find more barges and they manage to cross. Uh, it's actually Murray who really kind of bungles this and he doesn't go on the attack. The cavalry are allowed to be unleashed, but he holds back the King's German Legion. Uh, if they had gone in, he probably would have cut all of sorts lines there. But he does actually have his flanks protected as well as the main crossing. So I would say he's probably got enough contingency and he's certainly got the forces to continue that passage if there were more barges. He doesn't crush salt. I would, I would strongly you know, agree with that. However, the French army that managed to, is to limp back to Spain is limping back. They've lost all their cannon. They've lost a considerable number of men. And they have actually suffered a huge retreat, especially on morale, that they have lost so much with the loots, their pay and their honour across that mountains, as well as the hardship of crossing the mountains whilst being attacked by Portuguese guerrillas. They're having to fight across subsequent bridges, which are very well defended by Portuguese militia, the Ordinancia. Um, I, I would say they're not crushed, but damn, they took a battering. Some nice counterpoints there. I'll, yeah, fair enough. Okay. Beatrice, I know you want to, to come back on Marcus on this. Yes, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not really arguing with, with, with Marcus here, but I, I again want to underscore this point as, uh, to, to what extent a battle is hung in the balance and to how easy it's tilted to the one or the other side in historiography. Because if it, it seems to me here that the, the major pivot of this battle was salt laying in bed. If, if he went out on time, who knows? Who knows? So it's just this, this, this Marichal again. Did he lay in bed alone? I mean, what, what was he doing there? And uh, this is one of the pivots in this whole battle, because again, as you, as you already said, so said before, again, Wellington was not able to crush Salt's army and he could go on for the coming years to follow and sort of the same as in Toulouse. 
there's the one thing though that, that that hasn't been mentioned and that i think is important with all those battles uh on the european continent it's getting access and consolidate your hold on harbors and port cities because getting the troops to Porto, having a, a harbor city, a port city in the north of the country was of major importance, was strategic importance. It was also important with the battles uh, being uh, waged, uh, the Ostende, Audenaarde, the, the, more the, the, the port cities uh, up north. So for the British, this was always a major point to, to secure access to the seas. And with Porto, they had that. So I think Porto is of great strategic importance, as was Bordeaux just before Toulouse. So this is something that also not just focusing on the city alone but it's, it's important to to zoom into there are some sources that say he watched the crossing from a from a rooftop uh from a tower constructed on the rooftop and he he mistook it for the swiss himself but most sources come down to the fact he was in bed lounging around and uh waiting for breakfast in fact some of the british officers actually ate that breakfast uh, and a few there are accounts of British soldiers finding other French meals and saying they're not going to have it in case they were poisoned because they were left in such um, hurry which I particularly enjoy so they they gave up a good meal because um, they were so worried the French had abandoned it with poison but actually they just left so quickly it seems um, yes yeah, so if he'd been awake uh, certainly he does seem to be awake and then just really laconic to the intelligence picture that's being gathered up and he's meant to have dismissed the first reports of red coats as being swiss personally uh, certainly his commanders jump into action with the 17th theme and then the, the 70th theme so yes yeah, is is a really interesting character was his actions uh, changed quite a lot um, I wish there was more about him in the domain and certainly his his memoirs aren't available and um, uh, in full and some of them haven't been translated which is a shame if, if i may there's one line but i can't find uh, my quotation on that i think i have it from rory muir's website and it's uh, wellington saying something on salt and he it seems that he made his comment that salt was very apt in preparing towards battle and uh, as soon as the battle started salt lost uh, lost his oversight so this is, should be a comment somewhere Yes, and, it, and and sort of prepared for an attack to the west um, at here. So, I mean, to me, that that's that. This is why Porto was such a great victory. Is sort was preparing for an attack to the west, and Wellington undermines that by coming slightly to the east and coming on a river crossing where no one expected it. I mean, an amphibious crossing is ambitious, risky, and I think that an unusual, uh, and I think that's what makes it so interesting to me. But um, the unusual nature of it I think makes it pretty great as well because we don't see that in many other uh, battles certainly not where they're using barges and not wading across the ford. Mark let me bring you in. Okay thank you Marcus very interesting I've got two questions and I'll try and ramble them in a way that kind of makes sense um, we've already touched on you know, whether, whether Sewell was in bed or not, but th this is way more fundamental than whether Sewell was having a snooze. The whole of Sewell's army was fast asleep to allow this crossing to happen. Where were the guards on the river? Where were his generals? Where was the whole army? Yeah. So because there's one question there is, what the hell was this whole army doing? Because there's no way they should have got across without being seen. The second point, and this is about the crushing of Sewell and 
yeah, I think we all agree he wasn't crushed as effectively as Wellington had, had, had wanted. And it hasn't kind of been mentioned, but in some ways, the thing that didn't work that allowed Saul to escape in the shattered state he was, was the failure of the flanking attack by Beresford, which for, for a lot of reasons didn't quite work, but it was Beresford's force who was supposed to cut off the retreating French. And for a number of reasons that we can't come over tonight, it didn't happen. So the, the question in this one is, any views are on, on, on why Beresford, Beresford's flanking attack didn't work? In, in reverse, I don't have any strong views on why Beresford's didn't work. I'm, I'm always surprised by his caution. And I, I've really enjoyed listening to Marcus Beresford's accounts and podcasts and his brilliant book um, on that. But, you know, he, he obviously, I think, rightly so, plays his great ancestor. But yeah, Beresford is kind of the weak link here. And he was meant, this is planned by, by Wellington to have three prongs. Uh, Hill is his left flank and he joins a backup uh, just before the main battle because he's being pushed between the sea and the road. And Beresford is the right flank into the hill, linking up with more Portuguese forces. And he, he lets the side down. He lets the, um, the French slip away. Um, but Wellington had planned, or Wellesley as he was, planned um, to have this flanking manoeuvre. So it's not really against Wellesley, Wellington, uh, more against Beresford, I'm afraid to say. Um, and for the French being asleep, I mean, they certainly were some awake. Um, and the ones who were awake were with the wagons of the loot and the wounded. And Wellington sees them walking out of the city. So there certainly were some um, withdrawing out of the city. And they were defended by cavalry and some were walking and riding in, um, in the wagons. And we, they missed them um, leaving the city. And that's why Wellington knows he needs to act decisively because the French are in the process of taking their loot and their wounded home effectively um so there are some awake yet the guards seem to be almost non-existent and that's why the portuguese are able to unveil um the hidden barges just one observation i, I wouldn't uh, be comfy agreeing with you on beresford being the weak link i think if you kind of look what was happening beresford was broadly there what happened was the French generals out there, and this was classic French senior officer friction, forgot to tell Sewell that Beresford was there. So it came as a bit of a horrendous shock to Sewell when he told his army to retreat on the, along a particular road and then found it was populated by Portuguese troops, which none of the French generals in that particular area had bothered telling him. So I think there's, there's lots of subplots, as you say, around the, the, the Second Battle of Porto. Oh, there's a huge, and without getting into them, there's a whole plot where Salt wanted to possibly be king and his his officers were actually in agreement with um, Wellington, uh, Wellesley. It, it's a really fascinating part of the marshal who could be king, uh, but that gets very complicated for, I think it's a podcast in itself. <laughs> it certainly is. And I get the sense that you're just kind of fishing ever so slightly for another feature on uh, the Napoleonicist. But, you know, we'll, we'll save that for a day when you've actually written this book of yours. Not that we've mentioned it much. Um, Josh, I want to give you well, right of reply. Well, uh, as the Duke of Wellington said, echoing Beatrice here, uh, Silt knew how to get his men to a battlefield, but not what to do with them when they got there. 
Uh, and unluckily for Silt, he didn't even know this was going to be a battlefield, as, um, so it's twice as worse. Uh, I think that Porto slash Duro is one of Wellington's forgotten great victories, or forgotten is an overused term, but it's an ignored one. And the reason I feel that is, is because it's, it's sort of a bridge point. Um, it's famous for the crossing, it's not famous for the fighting. It's, and, and therefore in, in, when, you, when you have to stack it up uh, um, against some of his other great battles, it's, it doesn't seem as impressive. Uh, so, again, I'm, I'm really usually quite terrible at, at asking piercing questions about, about these sorts of battles. I just tend to support people's thoughts on them, uh, and cut my own legs off. Uh, it, I've always felt that Porto was a very impressive victory. Um, just to play along, I'll say to, to what extent is this like Asai, um, a victory of opportunity. And as a result, um, you know, it couldn't, it, like, like Mark said, it could not have happened. Wellington himself knew it couldn't have happened if the French were paying any attention at all to that riverbank. And he was watching the, the boats go across, just waiting for the artillery to rip, it, rip into them from some corner or another. So what, to what extent is this um, a, battle of a victory of opportunity? Um, not that's necessarily a bad thing. And to what extent is this, uh, and does that sort of alter its, its um, place amongst his greatest battles? No, is the short answer. Uh, it's a battle of opportunity, but then all battles are. Salamanca was an opportunity that Wellington grasped with both hands. Um, Waterloo was an opportunity when he's taken the terrain and, you know, is liaised. is a series of opportunities, I would say. But yet he's, he's risking. It is completely opportunistic. It is very risky. Um, he's seen an opportunity and he's exploiting it. He's seen that Salt is watching the coast, watching the west, and is going in from the southeast. Um, yes, on that. Uh, it's hugely opportunistic. But like, then, like I say, it's not really a criticism. It's more like... <laughs> yeah. Explain yeah, I, I, explain this a facet of it really. <laughs> you, say, you know, no no uh, plans survives contact with the enemy or all plans go out the door as soon as the first bullet passes your head as the the soldiers say. You know, the the plans are constantly evolving and being opportunistic. Uh, I would agree. I I think Porto's probably Wellington's most risky apart from maybe a say, but I would say probably most that yeah, they could have the the first um, 25 men in the first barge could have been blown out the water to smithereens uh, within seconds uh, if the French were watching where they could have done. And actually, each subsequent attack, if the if the French guns be brought into the action on the river, you know, men could have died left, right, and centre. Uh, but uh, they they kind of didn't, and that's the risk paid off, I would say, and that's what makes it great to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree with Zach earlier as well, in terms of it, it I think I, I agree as well, it, it, it's, it sort of shows Portugal is, is defensible, and you can fight in Portugal against an invading army, and, uh, mm. and that's, that's useful to remember as well, so it proves Sir John Moore, yeah. or Sir John Moore. <laughs> it proves Sir John Moore wrong, or, or Sir John Moore, um, Portugal being 
you know, potentially saved on an open battlefield, maybe not behind a fortified line. Ooh, controversial, controversial statement because Marcus knows full well that he has baited the trap, Um, (laughs) especially after Mark was reasonably nice um, in terms of of disagreeing with with Marcus there because that is a lovely little segue and Marcus has deliberately set this up uh, into Mark's um, pitch. Last but by no means least, Mark, you are making the case that the greatest victory was not actually a battle but a series of fortifications. Yeah, and I, I think as always, podcasts like this are to maybe be a, a, a little bit sort of argumentative. Uh, and I, I'm pulling forward that Wellington's greatest victory was the construction of the lines of Torres Vedras. And I, I, I can accept that many people would think this is an odd choice, but, but really, is it? Firstly, does a greatest victory have to be a battle? Uh, and, I, and I'll quote from somebody who's a little bit older than me from two and a half thousand years ago, who wrote, to fight and conquer in all your battles is not supreme excellence. Supreme excellence consists in breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. I think this, this, this young lad Sun Tzu uh, uh, has got some good points. Now, if we, if we kind of look at the, the 1810, the, the third invasion, Wellington enticed the overconfident French army of Messina 300 kilometers into Portugal, only for them to discover impenetrable defenses in front of them, no food available for his troops, and all the communications back into Spain closed. So Messina had no idea what was going on. Now, Victories always seem to end up in in body counts, both of the numbers there and the casualties. Well, Messina entered Portugal with about 65,000 troops in September 1810. When it returned to to Spain in in April 1811, it was a defeated, starving wreck of less than 40,000 troops. So this is a loss of 25,000 experienced French troops. But it's actually more than just numbers of, of, of bodies. Uh, and it's certainly that that number is more than the French lost in any battle in the peninsula. And certainly any British battle, Allied battle, Waterloo's probably the only one where the French suffered casualties in that sort of number. But I think it also put Messina's army out of action completely for many months. So this wasn't just about the troops. This was completely... Uh, destroying a functioning force for most of 1811. And over this period we're talking about, where we've talked about Messina losing 25,000 troops, the Allied army between October 1810 and March 1811, it's not worth counting the casualties. It it was people dying of colds and disease, but there was nobody dying, apart from minor numbers, in in any conflict with the French. So this was a 25,000 to nil win. Now, that that I think is is quite substantial. But the impact of the line to Torres Vedras is much wider than simply a reduction in the enemy's troops. And we've talked about this already. It enabled Wellington to maintain his presence in the Iberian Peninsula against French forces that were never less than three times the size of his Anglo-Portuguese army. And at many cases, the French were stronger again. I argue that Wellington knew he always had a safe place to retreat in case of difficulty, 
And this gave him the confidence when he wanted to be bold or aggressive or reckless and take the offensive. But the lines had another purpose apart from defending the Allied army. They also signaled the continuance of Portugal as an independent nation. And again, we've already talked about that uh, as a point. Uh, in 1810, the, the Portuguese House of Braganza would have gone down in history if it wasn't for the lines of Torres Vedras. And let's bring this all together. This uh, event, the, the building of these defences was very much sticking two fingers up at Napoleon. This was the third failed French invasion of Portugal. That will not have gone down well in Paris, but I'm sure it was being watched with much greater interest in Austria, Prussia and Russia, amongst others. We mustn't lose sight of the fact that the losers in this campaign, uh, without any doubt, were the Portuguese civilians who were uh, either displaced and starved or, or victims of French brutality. And they did die in their tens of thousands through this terrible winter. And you've got to think that this is another kind of playing with people's minds. You know, having disposed of Messina, all the other French commanders in Spain knew that if they were ordered to try the same thing again, that they would probably end up with the same fate. So this is very much playing mind games like the reverse slope, which Wellington is so popular for. You're trying to beat the enemy before they even turn up for, for whatever the event is. Now, the sort of achievements we're talking about here, Wellington could not have done on a battlefield, no matter how good he was as an offensive or a defensive general. One mistake on the battlefield, it's all over. So let's, let's try and put the lines of Torres Vedras in context though, of why I think it is his greatest victory. If we look at release of Vimeiro, there were small scale victories that actually had no impact on the outcome of the 1808 campaign. Porto, would actually have been better if Soult had been caught and destroyed. Uh, that error meant 10 weeks later, Soult was threatening Wellington's communications after the Battle of Talavera. Talavera was a near defeat that achieved nothing other than the loss of the Allied wounded. Basako had no value unless he stopped the French. He didn't. Fuentes de Nor and Albuera were purely uh, fought to defend fortresses. Salamanca was a great victory, but strategically, what did it achieve? December 1812, Wellington's back on the Portuguese border with actually a worry again that he's going to retreat to his bolts at Lisbon. Victor Victoria was a great victory, but let's be honest, by then, the French in, in Spain were beaten. It was like kicking an opponent when he's down on the ground. Pyrenees, 1813 and 14. This was political, as we talked about with Beatrice, um, to show the other European powers that Britain was pulling its weight. Even Waterloo, the French were never going to win the war. Wellington snatched victory before the Austrians and Prussians arrived. And I think, you know, the final point, the thorn in Napoleon's southern flank, the lines, kept him looking over his shoulder when he was fighting in Europe. Had he pacified the Iberian Peninsula, there would have been a quarter of a million more troops available to, to Napoleon. I would argue that without the lines of Torres Vedras, there probably would not have been a Salamanca, a Vittoria, a Waterloo, or even a Duke of Wellington. Thank you. Oh, well played. That's, that's a, a full mic drop there, Mark. Thank you very much for that. 
Um, it's a good job that they, we're not using video for this because the faces that I pulled when you laid into Salamanca, um, <laughs> the faces Marcus pulled when you laid into Porto. Um, yeah, I, I, we, we could sit here and debate that um, in terms of Waterloo's after, uh, sorry, Salamanca's aftermath. Um, but the reason I like this one is that it's such a clever choice. Um, and you make such a compelling case of, of why it is such an intelligent choice, because you're absolutely right. Having that secure base to fall back on if, if the worst were to happen was absolutely crucial. You know, there's no, there's no question of that. Um, and yes, you can argue that once he's taken Theodore Rodrigo and Badahoff, actually he's got a forward line to that secure base. You know, he's got somewhere to fall back on and he's got four fortresses to shield him. And then if they were to fall, then he's got somewhere. So it, it, in effect, um, perhaps uh, you could argue that once those fortresses are taken, um, the lines become superfluous. But what I was surprised that you didn't emphasize um, in the course of this was the, the clandestine way in which they were built. The French have no clue what's going on north of, of Lisbon. Um, they, they have an inkling that Wellington's building some forts, but then um, Messina turns up and sort of goes, well, why didn't I hear anything about this? And they go, well, we you know, didn't hear anything. And he goes, the hills. Wellington didn't build the hills, but it's, it's just an incredible um, series of fortifications. Um, for more on the lines of Torres Vedras, folks, go and listen to a podcast I did with uh, Mark uh, a few months back on the lines oh, of Torres Vedras. Oh, read my book. It should be out in a few weeks. Or, importantly, buy the book, okay? This is important. Go and buy the book, available from hellion.co.uk um, for pre-order now. Don't go and get it from Amazon with the best one in the world to Jeff Bezos, because little companies like Hellion need the custom far more than Amazon do. So yeah. go and order it from Hellion. Bezos and also, sign up there, you say. Exactly. <laughs> His head's in the clouds, isn't it? Um, yeah, so, so go buy the book. We've, we've plugged your book, which is good and important. And equally, whilst we're doing book plugging, go and buy Beatrice's book, um, Fighting Terror After Napoleon, and go and buy Josh's book, Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira. Don't buy Marx's book because it's not out yet. No, I've heard that's rubbish. Oh, Back to Torres Vedras, though. One thing, and people have started mentioning this in the chat, and I'm sorry, I've already written it down on, on paper um, as this was being mentioned, is the civilian cost. Um, and the reason that I want to raise it is because I've had some interesting conversations with a few folks online who talk about the civilian cost, which is significant, and I'm really glad that you raised it. But they use it to try and cast Wellington as this evil individual who cruelly and willfully inflicted pain and suffering upon the Portuguese population just so that he could beat the French. You spent a lot of time researching this. So as an expert, I would like your take on those kinds of arguments. Yeah, I, I think it, it, it's a bit of a difficult argument to use it in a military situation, because if, if I can put it into a different context of a battle is that, you know, the, 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 the French army when they lost, well, no, your army lost 10,000 troops of this battle because they choose to fight. Had they just all run away or surrendered at the start of the battle, then there wouldn't have been any casualties. So all the casualties are your fault. It, it, it really is turning an argument on its head. And even if you can accept that Wellington knew, which he did, there was going to be some hardship on the Portuguese civilians, it was the French who were robbing and murdering them, not the British 
brackets with some exceptions minor. Um, can I just go back to the first point you made as well and just pick it up while I'm here? The, the secrecy thing is, is really interesting because it wasn't a secret. Now, I, I think there's two aspects to this. I think the first is straight geography and early 19th century travel. These forts were, were spread over across the two lines, something like 60 miles, 90 kilometers. People didn't travel more than a few kilometers from where they lived. So most people wouldn't actually get a feel there was something substantial being built. Uh, Wellington did try to keep it out of the press. Like I don't think he told the British government for several months that he was doing it. But Massena's argument he didn't know, I I'm going to criticize him and then support him. He did know because he was told when he was in Salamanca before he actually started the uh, invasion proper. I think what surprised him when he arrived there was the scale. Now, the defense of Messina is, if we look at Salamanca, that's the city, not the battle. Wellington made exactly the same mistake in his advance. He was warned they were fortifying the, uh, the, the city and he discounted in the same way as Messina because the view at the time was you know, permanent static fortifications can be you know, outflanked or, or, or beaten down. And I think in both cases, they were just surprised at the scale, not that they didn't know they were there. I'm very tempted to, to hold more of the limelight, but I'm not going to because I have hands being raised around the room. Beatrice, take it away. Yes, can I please surrender uh, all my points to Mark? because uh, I really love his pitch. And I really think that what uh, the case that you were making, Mark, that it was not just waging a battle, it was investing in future peace. It was investing in security. And if I may say so, I devoted a whole chapter in my book on the value of fortifications. And fortifications as such is a really exciting topic. And there's not so much written about it because you can write about it in a military fashion, but militarily speaking, you already made that point, Zach and Mark as well, fortifications were of no, not much use anymore because, uh, and Wellington himself, I have a quote of him in September, 1814 to Bathurst, he says, Wellington, the operations of the Revolutionary War have tended in some degree to put strong places out of fashion. Strong places are but little useful and at all events are not worth the expense which they cost. That's what he writes to Bathurst, but he builds the, uh, the line to Torres Fedra and then he goes on to create an even more expensive Wellington barrier from Ostende via mines even further down to Italy. So why did he do it? And he makes a case for that and it's called, it's a pledge in stone. And you said that yourself, Mark, very eloquently, it's a mark, a symbol of sovereignty. It's a, a symbol of sovereignty and not just of the sovereignty of Portugal, but also um, you could say allied sovereignty in line. So it's the British helping the Portuguese as they did later on with the Netherlands, Belgium and Germany, trying to create a security order that spanned the whole of Europe in order to prevent France from leashing out to further attacks in, in the near future. That's also the case why the French had to demolish all of their fortifications lines after 1815. So I think there's, there should be far more work be done on the value, the political, strategic, even the military value uh, of the fortress. So I really love your point. Thank you. 
I've got to say that is the first time anybody in one of these discussions has turned around and said, no, I surrender my option. I'm going to I'm going to switch sides. I'm going to do a marmont um, and, and switch sides. Uh, and support another cause. It uh, that's already quite was remarkable. my side. It already was my side. <laughs> this, this is true. Um, I'm not sure I need to respond. Thank you very much for all those kind comments. Uh, it, it's very fascinating to find anybody else's interest in fortifications because we are a, a very lonely breed of historian. But, but I think Wellington's comments, are, I think, are absolutely correct. And Napoleon felt exactly the same. He didn't want to waste any time uh, sort of playing around with fortresses. And Wellington demonstrated uh, in the Pyrenees in 1813, 1814, that static fortifications, similar in, in idea to the lines of Torres Vedras, don't work unless they are properly manned and supported because Wellington took all the French fortifications on, what was it, it was the, the Neve and the Nivelle um in that period so fortifications were on their way out the lines of Torres Vedras were somewhat unique in that they did actually succeed and in some ways that that sort of increases the argument for say that this is his greatest victory the lines of Torres Vedras were Wellington's uh line of last defense one that he was absolutely confident he could hold you know whatever the French threw at him and that, that's the point of this. It, it kept a toehold and a lifeline in, in the Iberian Peninsula. And that eventually had impact across the whole of Europe. But, but they were not the last and the biggest lines that were created. That was the Wellington barrier itself, which also um, embraced the fields of Waterloo. So it, it, he, he continued to do so in an even larger scale afterwards. So he, and I think your, the point that you raised just now, fortresses only serve the function if they're being manned. And this was also a kind of an appeal or an obligation put to the government of Portugal, as it was to the government of the Netherlands and Germany, to man those fortresses. And indeed, pay your duties to these allied lines of defenses that went throughout Europe after 1815. So Wellington, Wellington's legacy lives on in the lines of these fortresses that are still there throughout the map of Europe. And significantly, because you both picked up on the fact that there is need for more work on siege warfare and siege fortifications and so on, watch this space, folks and interested listeners, because there's a little rumble um, of something that I've got working. So if you're interested in working in that area, please drop me a line. I'm sorry, that was a rather shameless plug. Um, but there's, there's something coming um, to, to solve that gap in the market, because I think it's important and it needs addressing. Marcus and Josh, I want to give both of you the chance to reply to Mark because we're, we're giving him quite an easy ride on this one. Josh, first of all. Okay, I mean, I don't want to be the bad guy. I mean, <laughs> yes, you do. I, first of all, I, I was listening to Mark give his, his much more eloquent uh, presentation than, than mine, and being very jealous at the same time, and uh, <laughs> thinking, oh, Beatrice is just going love this. <laughs> this, is, this is just, this is literally what she <laughs> talks about. Yes, Torres Vedras is an excellent example of, of Wellington doing what Wellington does. Uh, it is something that Napoleon doesn't do. And earlier when I was talking about his greatest victories in the realm of Austerlitz, I was going to say Vittoria comes close because the French army actually had to be reorganized and reformed by Soult before it could take the field again. 
and um, Torres Vedras. Uh, because of the massive cost inflicted and the repercussions of it, these things come close to an Austerlitz situation. The argument for it being greater, because it's, it's a strategic victory, undoubtedly, uh, rather than a tactical one. Mm -hmm. Even for it being a greater victory, kind of hinges on how you classify the victory in question. So I agree completely up until 1812 that this is the greatest victory in, in, in the Iberian Peninsula. I think that from 1812 onwards, the victories that Wellington fights in the field have very, very important strategic implications for going forward. Um, and also the idea that just because it allows the other ones to happen doesn't mean that the ones that happen thereafter do not therefore also sort of <laughs> continue the ability for the future successes to occur. Um, Salamanca, yes, it, he got turned around at Burgos, but that didn't mean that it was strategically a waste of time. Very brave of you to criticize the Vittoria campaign as, as not having any uh, significant outcome, uh, not needing to be fought because of just the, the tremendous display of superiority he put over on the French uh, leading up to that. Uh, would it, to my mind, possibly make it a rival for Vittoria's veterans? And it's not necessarily that the battles in the Pyrenees didn't need to be fought if he was going to get into France, they had to be fought. Um, so it's it's they were in the way, and he had to had to do them. Uh, and so from that, see, see what I mean. From this point onwards, Torres Vedras becomes an equal sort of comparison. Uh, if you see what I mean, um, this is not to say I don't completely agree with with the tremendous importance of it. But I have I'm supposed to be supposed to be challenging this this. Tremendous, tremendous sort of obstacle to to everybody else's success here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That, thanks, Joss. And obviously, you know, a lot of what I said was tongue in cheek, but yeah. I think that, that the point about it that we can't lose sight of is, yeah, I, I'm not necessarily joking when I said if the lines of Torres Vedras weren't there. Wellington would have probably retreated to the boats and there would not have been a Salamanca and a Vittoria. And Salamanca and Vittoria were brilliant vi victories. Vittoria more so, I think, because that, that to me shows Wellington is best. Months long planning in advance, well worked out, absolutely brilliantly executed. Uh, and in some ways, it was the British troops who let him down at the end by dissolving into a mob at the end of the battle. But there's a whole discipline, the sort of a uh, debate for another day. So, I, th I think the lines of Torres Vedras disappear into the background, but they they did give the base from which Wellington operated. And as I did say, the, the end of the Salamanca campaign, he retreats from Burgos to Theodad Rodrigo. He did not know whether he was going to continue. It's only when he realised that Sewell had stopped chasing him because, uh, who was it, Marmont in charge? Had actually, with, no, King Joseph had withdrawn most of the French troops and so didn't really have enough to attack Wellington. If the French had continued, Wellington would have had to continue past Theodore Rodrigo, probably past uh, Coimbra, 
and could have ended up back back in Lisbon. So we're playing what ifs, but always a dodgy game. That was the base (laughs) from which he operated. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I, I just had to, I just had to sort of challenge the tongue-in-cheek kind of list of why Torres Vedras was <laughs> obvious. I mean, obviously, tactically, Salamang, uh, sorry, Asai is, is obviously the, the, the obvious choice. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> to be, to be, continue with the tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> Marcus, go on. Round up our, our critique. Well, our, let's be honest, it's not even a critique of Mark. He, he's wiped the floor with all of us. But round up our commentary on, on Torres Vedras. I've got, to, I've got to declare my interest because um, Mark's kindly been one of the people who's invited me onto the committee of the Friends of the Lines of Torres Vedras. So I've got to defend them as an umbrella. But, you know, within the parameters of Napoleonis' podcast, if I can attack um you know defense and attack is the mark of a good general right um so i'm not sure great can be so much delegation and wellington has put so much faith within his royal engineers so this is surely a great victory for the royal engineers and the portuguese laborers um rather than wellington himself he has the idea, but has less of a hand in the, the pot as he does many of his battles. And also, I feel like we might have skipped over the, the Portuguese civilian casualties a little bit too much. Um, the suffering of the Portuguese civilians was quite major. So it takes away some of the greatness. And, you know, as the cult Napoleon is um, often doing, the glory of this as a victory um, you know, they want to bang on about glory. I don't think Torres Vedras is glorious if for a victory. Let's, let's just first yeah. of all take a moment here and just mock the cult Napoleon for a second for continuing on the glory trip, okay? Let's not talk about glory anymore uh, here. <laughs> I mean, far be it for me to, to hold people back from mocking cult Napoleon, but surely that's the topic for an entire podcast in its own right. Um, and, and by topic, I mean, you could do an entire, just a whole podcast. Yeah. I think series. I painted my toenails that day. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Mark? Can I just do a very quick response to Marcus? Um, de- delegation, yeah, yes, to a certain extent, but I, I, I've had the un- untold joy of reading all the letters that bounce forward and backwards between Wellington and his engineers and the Portuguese government, et cetera, et cetera. It was delegation Wellington style, which is delegation with a small d where he pretty much gave every instruction. So yes, the point point made, but he still had his finger on the pulse. In fact, both pulses. Uh, The Portuguese civilian casualties, yes, they, they were horrendous, but but I think the French get a really light run through the peninsula war because they were committing murder and atrocity in every town and city across the Iberian Peninsula through the whole period. Uh, and it barely gets a mention. Uh, you know, Wellington's sacking of, of, of fortresses, which again is a, is a discussion for another day, is none of that is very good. But it was the French who were killing the Portuguese civilians. And being a bit crude again, it was the Portuguese government's responsibility to feed the Portuguese civilians, not the British army. Wellington tried very hard to get funds to help support uh, the, the, the displaced Portuguese 
And even at the unit level, there are letters and stories about troops sharing food with starving Portuguese civilians within the lines. So the casualties were horrendous and we can have a debate about whose fault it was, but I'm inclined to think that Wellington shouldn't take the full blame for the fact many thousand uh, Portuguese civilians died. And my final point on that is, had Wellington left the peninsula at that point, would the Portuguese civilians have been better off under French rule for many, many years? And my view is, no, they would not. I mean, the fundamental point is, this is the third French invasion of Portugal. Why is it necessary? Because there's yet another French invasion. Um, and we could, again, do a whole um, podcast on the reasons why the French are even in Portugal in the first place, which are a, a head scratcher in themselves. Um, folks, thank you all so much. Before we go, though, I want to very quickly go around the room and turn this whole discussion on its head. Wellington's greatest failure. Now, granted, uh, we've got some faces who've dropped <laughs> at my suggestion here. Um, just very quickly, give me your, your first reaction. We could do a whole podcast on this, but we won't. What would you say was Wellington's greatest failure? And to just give you folks a moment to think about this, I'm going to take two. I'm going to be greedy and take two. Politically, I think it has to be the opposition to the Great Reform Bill. I think that's a, probably a slam dunk and obvious choice to take. Um, opposing democratic reform is not a good look um, at any moment in history after about 1789. And militarily, I'm going to go for something a little bit left field. And I'm going to say the failure and unwillingness to delegate, which at times was arguably justi justified, but on the whole probably left the British Army less able to respond flexibly to certain situations. And had Wellington been killed or seriously wounded, would have left the Anglo-Portuguese army in a far, far worse situation than if he had actually been willing to share some of the responsibility a little bit more and therefore kind of train up some junior commanders, even if that meant um, potentially incurring some setbacks along the way. So that's my, um, my failures. Beatrice, what are your thoughts on Wellington's greatest failures? That's quite a shocking question. Um, I never really have pondered Wellington's greatest defeats or asked myself that question. Um, you could say that Burgess was one of yeah, absolutely. the battles that didn't go that, that well. Um, and the, 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 I'm just now thinking why I come up at Burgess. It was an unsuccessful assault and it involved lots of casualties. There were not, it was not so well managed. The command and control was not in good order. A retreat went wrong. So I think I go for Burgess. Yeah, that's absolutely a, a fair comment. Um, I suspect we might have some echoing of that around the room, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I deal with it in quite some depth in, in my book on John Burgoyne, which came out last year. And, and Charles and I are doing it with Chris Parkinson sometime in the next several weeks. So that might be a reason not to pick it. Fantastic. Josh, what about you? Um, I think you know, good, good thinking out the box there, Zach, in not actually choosing a battle or campaign or anything like that, but choosing like command styles and personal <laughs> politics. That's very, those are valid, absolutely. Um, 
it's it's uh, I, I think it's a difficult one to do in terms of his lack of delegation sort of thing. The British Army was never actually very good at delegating things in that whenever a general died in the, in the battlefield, it generally tended to perform worse than just on its, its basic level, which actually was not always that brilliant anyway. Um, but I think, yes, Burgos is his greatest military, I, I guess, failure, because it's a sea, it is the problem with talking about military subjects. He does. Do you do you, you lose a siege? It's you. You fail to successfully carry a point. Um, and he himself said that a ridiculous place to fail at because it was a lot like many places in India he had taken very easily. And but tactically, tactically speaking, I'm going to call Burgos a strategic failure. Um, Tactically speaking, it was that that minor engagement in at Mysore, at Sultan Pasha, where he was tactically forced to withdraw from the field. Fair enough. I mean, we could discuss that, and I would be keen to another time. But for the interest of time now, thank you very much. And Marcus, round us off. Um, yes, Great Reform Act's opposition to political reform. Um, I will actually defend Wellington as a politician. Uh, he actually had some great reform with. Um, Peel. Um, personally, I think he's underplayed as a politician, and I would have liked to have seen uh, more of his government. But he, he stood in the way of popular demand, and by standing it, his government had to fall. And he should have known better than to defend an indefensible position. Um, militarily, his failure to reform the military as commander-in-chief after Waterloo, which led to some severe uh, hamstringing of Crimea. I, I want I want a podcast that deals with this because I take the opposite view that too many people blame Wellington for stuff that was out of his control. <laughs> well, then have a listen to the debate that's going to happen between Marcus and Ed. Although actually, in terms of timing, this might have gone out already. Um, one fact, way or another, but... there is a there is a podcast between Marcus and Ed where I primed them with that question mm -hmm. where they're going to uh, debate Wellington's reputation. Well, he 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 approved the rifle that won the Crimean War. But yeah, I, I would I would argue that <laughs> Wellington did not do enough. The regimental system needed uh, more reform. Regimental system was fine to fight the Russians. You're fighting the Russians. They were using smoothbores. Children, children, for the second time tonight, can you please <laughs> simmer down? It's, it's clearly the heat. It's gone to their head. Uh, Folks, this has been... Just in one thing. Talavera. There's not much clever about the Talavera campaign. I think that circumstance is beyond control. Marcus, you get the last word, and, and then, I, then I'm cutting the recording. <laughs> it's as simple as that. If I may, I would say Wellington's true greatest victory is his legacy. Uh, we're still talking about him 200 years later. There's over 321 place names in the UK main isles named after Waterloo, and heaven knows he's the most uh, non-fictioned named individual on pub signs. Uh, the Duke's head and the Wellington arms, uh, therefore, in the UK. And he got titles that range uh, from the, the Prince of Waterloo over in the Netherlands um, to Spain. And there are places all over the world, from uh, New Zealand to America, uh, that name themselves after the Duke. So his greatest victory is his legacy. 
So without Wellington, we wouldn't have names for places where we've gone for drinks. Folks, <laughs> this has been an absolute joy. Um, I'm going to plug your books one more time because I, I just really want people to go and buy them. Um, so Josh Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira looks at the Maratha and Jat campaigns. Uh, Mark Wellington and the Lines of Torres Vedras is out hopefully any day um, from hellion.co.uk. Mark, I believe you have a website too, markthompson.com. Yeah, Mark S. Thompson. I, I'm not difficult to find on the internet. No. Um, where your other publications are available, there's a list of them. Folks, go out and buy them. Yeah. Boy, does Mark know his stuff. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and Beatrice, Fighting Terror After Napoleon, which I believe was published by Cambridge University Press. Um, all of these will hopefully be available on the Napoleonist's bookstore, actually. And Marcus at some point is doing a book on Second Battle of Porto. Stay tuned for further updates. Folks, thank you all so, so much. This has been an absolute joy. And I've barely, and I really do mean barely for the first time, maintained control of this one. You pushed me hard tonight. I always thank my Patreon supporters, but have good news for those of you who don't want to make a regular contribution, which I completely understand, but do perhaps want to leave a one-off tip. You can now tip the Napoleon Assist via Ko-fi, the link is in the description, and know in advance that your generosity, whatever the size of your tip, is hugely appreciated. And of course, no episode would be complete without a shout out to my Patreon supporters, who keep the podcast going through their generous subscriptions. A particular thanks to my Commander Patrons, Ger Brown and Jane Davis, and my Mentioned in Dispatches Patrons, Alexandra Lyon, Josh Keeney, Gareth Copeland, Ross Flowers, Jim Deary, Lucy Tatner, James Bevan, Roy Muir, Lynn Dawson, Beatrice DeGraff, Anna Vakulenko, John Haynes, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Alex Churchill and Rob Griffith. There are a few perks for supporters, including a discount code from Pen and Sword, and Commander patrons get to influence these themed months. In fact, voting is open for the next themed month right now. So if you want to dictate where this podcast goes in the future, check out the link in the description for more details. Join me in a few days' time when Wellington Month will continue. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well. Stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.